I'm in the exploratory phase of finding a teaching-focused faculty position. My goal in the short term is to get a foot in the door so that I can gain teaching experience at the college level. To this end, I'll be teaching introductory biology at a community college this winter. I have plenty to learn, but I think I will become a good instructor and mentor if given the opportunity. I want to be a part of helping young, intelligent scholars to realize their potential. I want to inspire as well as to educate, and I want to become broadened and inspired in turn. I want to be made better as I help others to become better, and in particular toward the advancement of truth. I might only have a given student in my class once or twice. If my mentorship helps nudge young people in the right direction, it will be toward more critical thinking, an understanding of scientific methodology, and toward the honor of truth. The scientific method is designed to determine the objective truth of its subject. By its very nature, the method is disagreeable to political and social ideology. Freely inquiring scientists design experiments to cut through bullshit and get to the facts, and not just other people's biases are threatened by this, but also and perhaps especially the scientists' own biases. Socrates used to say, the unexamined life is not worth living. Well, as far as I'm concerned, the unexamined hypothesis is not worth believing. Disinterested individuals must consider what they really know and what is truly valuable, and keep in mind the goals of whoever is making a claim or policy prescription. Science can only inform us if it is free from such interests. This includes biological and physical sciences, of course, but also social psychology and economics. When I was in my first semester at college, an introductory psychology teacher taught me to be a skeptic. He directly challenged religious claims, even though there were religious students in the room. He wasn't being a bigot. He was training us in critical thinking. These days, we would expect that this same professor would go after popular notions about racism and policing, or global warming, for example. But if he did, there is no way he could keep his job. My guess is that he either doesn't teach anymore, or he doesn't teach critical thinking anymore. It's too dangerous. Had Christian and Muslim students gone to the administration to complain back in 1999, the professor would not have been in any danger at all. But today, forget it. The reason seems to be that 20 years ago, the religious right wing had no administrative power in academia, but now the religious left wing has total authority. Of course, any individual is welcome to hold whatever beliefs they want to hold, but an educated person of character must learn to examine his positions objectively. It looks to me like American academic science is in danger of being fully captured by political and social forces. If that happens, we cannot continue to excel in the production of objective knowledge. This is a hard switch in ethical paradigms from deontology to consequentialism. According to deontological ethics, we do what is right because it is right. We tell the truth because it is the truth. Maybe running foreign intelligence operations and military programs and federal monetary policy are necessarily consequentialist, but these are political enterprises, not scientific ones. What happens when the engines of scientific discovery are gummed up with politics? As far as I can tell, they become unreliable and broken. If American academic science is subservient to political interests, foreign and domestic, then if we want to get published or get grants or keep our jobs, we'd better deliver the results which justify the political interests. Among the groups showing signs of capture are human resources, departmental administrations, 
peer-reviewed journals, the sources of grant funding, the unions, which represent lecturers, professional organizations, and student organizations. If I had to diagnose the situation, I would say two different forces are at play. One is that ideologues, who are a small minority of the overall body, are taking over the universities in order to turn them into centers of activism and social reform rather than businesses and scientific institutions. This changes their mission entirely, as is evident from the rewriting of mission statements and the overhauling and massive expansion of administered powers. Second, I think that financial and political institutions are using the effectiveness of the ideologues who threaten and intimidate in order that they can seize further power over the population, demand censorship, undermine privacy and judicial protection, and grab riches for themselves. I'm not trying to advance a partisan position. Conservatives were used in the same way after 9-11 in order to achieve the same aim, to demand censorship, undermine privacy and judicial protection, and to make the rich and powerful richer and more powerful. We started two wars, passed the Patriot Act, and handed over trillions in taxpayer dollars. At the time, the media were all in with the powerful to make that happen, and this time is no different. The narrative runs like an advertisement for a drug. Here is what is threatening. This is an emergency. Here is the unique solution. However, generally not followed in rapid succession by a list of side effects in the fine print. You need to hand over your money to our sponsors and your freedom to their political allies. And it ends with the happy people dancing blissfully through a field of flowers. Ask your local, local representative if Tyrannosol is right for you. It's predicated in every case by an emergency, and there's always an emergency on hand. Terrorism, Saddam Hussein, drug addiction, COVID, global warming, North Korea, white nationalism, Vladimir Putin, autism, rising crime, the gender pay gap, mass shootings, mental illness, Israel, the southern border, Donald Trump, insurrection, disinformation, misinformation, the Russians, the Russians, the Russians. Whatever is the crisis du jour, the prescription is the same. Surrender your money and your freedom to our sponsors and their political allies. Loose lips sink ships, so watch what you say. Criticizing your leaders is an act of treason. We can't afford dissent during wartime, and it sure is wartime, so fall in line, comrade. And wouldn't you know it, we go for it time and time again. So what? That's just the way the world works. Maybe so. But somehow, throughout the turmoil and the disastrous wars of the past two centuries, we have managed to procure massive scientific gains. Pursuit of the truth has enriched us beyond measure, both intellectually and economically. Chemical fertilizers enable us to produce more than sufficient food to provision the world's population. Vaccines and antibiotics, surgical advancements, and drugs have extended life expectancies prodigiously. These are just some of the obvious translational advancements. But most remarkably, we have also extended our fundamental knowledge of the universe, from microwave background radiation to genetics. We've developed the theory of natural selection, atomic theory, the Big Bang theory, plate tectonics, the germ theory of disease, the theory of relativity, quantum theory, and before long, if we don't fuck it up, a physical theory of consciousness. The problem is that we are too willing to prioritize short-term concerns on the ground that we are in an emergency at the expense of long-term progress. It's as if we are on a war footing. 
We have a body of students at our disposal, and at the moment we don't need well-informed scholars, we need zealous soldiers. Well, I'm not in the business of making soldiers, and I don't consider the youth of America to be at my disposal. We are talking about the betterment of people's lives. They are enrolling in an academic program, presumably for the purpose of enriching their lives and setting up profitable futures for themselves. Some of them could become productive members of the scientific community, and who knows what societal advantages that will pretend. But good scientists are open-minded and skeptical of narratives. Are such people even welcome on campus anymore? I know good professors who avoid the classroom for fear of saying the wrong thing and losing their jobs. These aren't right-wingers, either, just yesterday's liberal progressives who might slip up and ask the wrong test question, give the wrong example, or tell the wrong truth. I really want what's best for my students, all of them. A good setting would enable them to challenge me just as I challenge them. I'm not interested in provoking a fight or being controversial or hurting anyone's feelings. But I must be able, in order to be a science professor, to teach critical thinking and the scientific method. And the material itself, what happens when evolutionary biology, neuropsychology, the biology of reproduction, or whatever, runs against the latest social fad or political objective? Do I change the curriculum each semester to steer clear of the problem? Isn't that the reason the social fad is running rampant? Because academic science avoids the question and a cohort of students has no education on the matter? Or worse, and totally unacceptable to me, am I to teach material that I know to be misleading or false in order to appease the prejudices of administration, the college administration, the political administration, or the activist judges of the kangaroo court? The nice thing about the truth with conscientious people is that political and social pressures are irrelevant to it. The question of whether the measles vaccine causes autism is an empirical matter. No, it doesn't. The question of whether human activity is responsible, at least in substantial measure, for global warming is empirical. Most likely, yes. The question of whether GMO crops are bad for health or marijuana contributes to mental illness or affirmative care leads to better outcomes in gender dysphoria or women on average prefer careers in medicine over engineering or whether hydroxychloroquine is useful in the treatment of COVID-19 all of these perfectly valid empirical questions. Political correctness is a term first used by Marxist-Leninists after the Russian Revolution. It referred to things which fall in line with the principles and objectives of the Communist Party. So something can be politically true as opposed to factually true. I observe a distinction between an adherence to a concept of truth and adherence to a concept of goodness. In either case, speaking truth or speaking politely, is a matter of loyalty. In a manner of speaking, if you serve truth, then you will not betray it for the sake of social virtue. If you serve social virtue, then you will not betray it for the sake of the truth. This is a coherent perspective, but I am highly skeptical of it, and I have found that this valuation, good before truth, goes back a long way. Socrates was accused by the Athenians of corrupting the youth. This corruption is in the form of speaking truth which was not for the good as far as the jury was concerned. Thus, political correctness precedes the communists by a long way. In Athens, denying the existence of gods was punishable by death, for example. It seems to me that this law is based upon the principle that believing in gods is good for society, and what is good is more valuable than what is true. In all likelihood, Socrates was not persecuted for the given reasons. 
but for being a thorn in the side of rich and powerful interests in Greece. It's the same thing with professors who are afraid to teach. The reasons given for their ruin will have something to do with racial bias or gender discrimination or something. But in nearly every case, the professor in question will not be racist or sexist or any such thing, just as Socrates was not a source of corruption. Rather, it will be in the interest of the rich and powerful that free-thinking academics not be in a position to challenge their claims and policies. Claims about, say, a profitable new pharmaceutical product. Policies about, say, mandating that everyone must take said product. Messages brought to you by the makers of said product. Policies enacted by lawmakers whose campaigns are sponsored by those makers. Of course, this example is entirely hypothetical, and any resemblance to actual events is entirely coincidental. I find much of what Plato wrote in The Republic to go along with this idea of good before truth, and I utterly disagree with his ideas. Interestingly, Plato expresses these ideals in the person of Socrates in his dialogues. Socrates is said to have always been carrying on about what is true, but not allowed to be said. In The Republic, though, Plato has him in conversation with Adiamantos, discussing the ideal city and how it should be governed. Here's a passage from Book 2, starting with Socrates speaking, quote, Shall we just carelessly allow the children to hear any chance fables molded by chance purses, persons and to receive in their souls opinions which are generally contrary to those which we believe they ought to have when they grow up? Most certainly not. Then first, as it seems, we must set up a censorship over the fable makers and approve any good fable they make and disapprove the bad. Those which are approved, we will persuade their mothers and nurses to tell the children and to mold the souls of the children by the fables even more carefully than the bodies by their hands. Most of those they tell now must be thrown away. What sort do you mean, he said? In the greater fables, I said, we shall see also the less, for I suppose the same stamp is on great and small, and they have very much the same power in them. Don't you think so? Yes, I do, said he, but I don't understand which you call the great ones. Those which Hesiod and Homer have told us, and the other poets, for these have told us and still tell us false fables which they compose. Which do you mean, said he, and what fault do you find in them? one that must be condemned first and most of all, especially if it is an ugly falsehood. What is that? When one portrays badly in words what the gods and heroes are, like a painter who paints a portrait not in the least like what he wants to portray. Yes, indeed, he said, it is right to condemn such things. Unquote. Plato has Socrates give a utilitarian argument on what stories are good for society and therefore should be permitted. Socrates is talking first about fables for children then for adults. And notice that he prescribes censorship of a story, especially if it is an ugly falsehood. This means that Plato prefers truth to falsehood, but is perfectly willing to censor truth in service of the greater good. The passage goes on with Socrates giving an example. Quote, the greatest falsehoods about the greatest persons was an ugly one, how Uranus did what Hesiod said he did, and how Kronos had his revenge, and what Kronos did and what his son did to him. Even if these things were true, I did not think they ought to be just carelessly told before simple young people. They were best left in silence. But if it were necessary to tell them, as few as possible should hear them as a dead secret. And for that mystery there should be sacrificed not a pig, but some huge monster, so that the fewest possible in number should ever have heard these tales." Unquote. The sacrificial pig here is a reference to the Eleusian Mysteries. I find it heartbreakingly ironic that Plato has Socrates talking this way about the great poets corrupting the youth 
when that is exactly the grounds upon which the real Socrates was prosecuted and killed. Plato's crucial sin is pride. In his hubris, he assumes that someone like him, as philosopher king, is sufficiently wise and moral to decide what the people can learn, believe, discuss, and do, and moreover, how they should do it. I'm not saying that Plato was unwise. I just don't think anyone is wise enough to hold ultimate power. Not you, and not me either. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto Plato what is Plato's. I say render unto truth what is true. A major innovation of the Enlightenment was the idea that government should serve according to the consent of the governed. Moreover, the American founders put all kinds of roadblocks in the way of power, preferring to have an ineffectual government to an efficient authoritarianism. The latter is great at carrying out what is already understood and wanted, building dams and highways, for example. But witness the difference in contribution between authoritarian societies and free ones. Is it not obvious that America has punched above her weight in direct proportion to the free expression of her people? Need I mention literature and film, jazz, blues, and rock and roll, space exploration, medicine, engineering, radio, automobiles and aviation, civil rights and academic excellence? If my theoretical framework for consciousness ends up having value, and directing the world toward an important truth, it will be no coincidence that I, who authored it, am an American. And not a special American either, just a country boy from a working-class family, privileged to have grown up in a free and open society with a pre-existing tradition of independent thinking, enlightenment values, and a you-can-do-anything-you-set-your-mind-to ethic. Unconvinced? That's all well and good. The arts and sciences are valuable. But Trump, or COVID, or police brutality, or Putin, or global warming, or whatever the hell the latest meltdown is about. There will always be problems to solve, and injustices to battle. We do not discard our principles in order to solve them. I don't know much about it, but I imagine McCarthyism was a real setback for American institutions of science, just as anti-Semitism or sexism would be. Fortunately, McCarthyism came and went, and our best and brightest could get back to work. I can only hope the same for our present condition. Political correctness is antithetical to free inquiry. I don't give a damn which direction the political correctness is coming from either. Despite how rampant it is on the political left today, I'm well aware that it was the religious right in America trying to get Howard Stern off the radio and caring about the dangers of Dungeons and Dragons and trick-or-treating on Halloween. Now it's the administration warning college students to avoid cultural appropriation on Halloween. And Dungeons and Dragons and heavy metal music are probably toxic masculinity or white supremacy or something. The key problem with valuing the good over the true is that the good is a different thing to different people. What we decide is for the best is a negotiation among competing concerns. Most of the time, the extreme position on one side or the other, with regard to what is good, is unpopular and blind to the valid ethical concerns of the other side. Both extremes are unjust. This is true in the abortion debate, policing, global warming policies, free markets, everything. Is it good when a rap song has misogynistic lyrics or when a radio host spreads unfounded conspiracy theories? No, not really. Is it good to censor the expression of rap musicians and radio hosts? No, that's a bad idea. The extreme position, abolish the police, abolish fossil fuels, treat abortion as murder, end private property, censor disinformation, whatever it is, perfectly illustrates my point. In every case, it does more evil than good. 
We have to stop pretending that our choices are either one extreme measure or its opposite. Almost nobody wants the extreme. Since the extreme position is unpopular, force and coercion become necessary to make it manifest. And what if force and coercion are actually the whole point? What if racism or Islamic extremism or disinformation or whatever is just a convenient rationale for the seizure of our money and the suspension of our liberties? Whatever the emergency of the moment, let that be the justification for authoritarianism. Just this week, The Intercept reported with substantial evidence that the Department of Homeland Security has been colluding with tech companies to control and censor information which could undermine faith in the U.S. government. The article says, quote, According to a draft copy of DHS's Quadrennial Homeland Security Review, DHS's capstone report outlining the department's strategy and priorities in the coming years, the department plans to target inaccurate information on a wide range of topics, including the origins of COVID-19 pandemic and the efficacy of COVID-19 vaccines, racial justice, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, and the nature of U.S. support in Ukraine. The challenge is particularly acute in marginalized communities, the report states, which are often the targets of false or misleading information, such as false information on voting procedures targeting people of color, unquote. God forbid the people find out we were funding gain-of-function research in China, that our boondoggle COVID vaccines don't stop the virus from spreading, that we handed over $100 million worth in military hardware to the Taliban. It would be good if the people didn't know the truth, right? Remember when the American left stood up against the powerful? Oh, and they say the challenge is particularly acute in marginalized communities. Is that right? You mean you don't want black and brown people to think for themselves because they might not do your bidding? Or is it that the DHS considers black and brown people not to be smart enough to sort out truth from fiction without their help? That's what it looks like to me. But I'll give the government the benefit of the doubt. I'll allow that the DHS is doing what they think is good for the country, for their party, for themselves, for the culture, or whatever. That is putting the good before the true, and it goes wrong every time. I saw a paper by Jordan Moss and Peter J. O'Connor called The Dark Triad Traits Predict Authoritarian Political Correctness and Alt-Right Attitudes. As you may know, the dark triad traits are narcissism, psychopathy, and Machiavellianism. The authors write, quote, The purpose of this paper was to assess whether dark triad traits and entitlement predict three extreme but increasingly mainstream sets of political attitudes. The three extreme attitudes we measured have received extensive media attention over the previous few years. However, have been the focus of very little academic research. Given the largely antisocial and violent outcomes these attitudes have been linked to, we investigated their relationship with the dark triad personality traits and entitlement. As hypothesized, we found incremental effects of the dark triad traits and entitlement in predicting two of the three political attitudes. Psychopathy, which is characterized by a lack of empathy and antisocial behavior, was a strong dark triad predictor of all political attitudes. It positively, correlate, positively predicted white identitarianism and political correct authoritarianism and neg- negatively predicted politically correct liberalism. This was true both when assessing bivariate correlations which can be regarded as moderate magnitude, as well as when assessing regression coefficients in politically correct authoritarianism and politically correct liberalism. 
Machiavellian, Machiavellianism was the strongest unique predictor of white identitarianism. However, the meaning of this is not clear given the known high correlations between dark triad traits. Whilst narcissism had significant bivariate correlations with white identitarianism and political correct authoritarianism, it tended to have small and non-significant effects when controlled for entitlement at step three. Indeed, entitlement was a moderate, unique predictor of both white identitarianism and political correct authoritarianism, and the strongest predictor of politically correct authoritarianism. Interestingly, the results indicate that although these attitudes are thought to reflect opposing ends of the traditional left, PC versus right, white identitarianism, political spectrum, those high in white identitarian and political correct authoritarianism are very similar in terms of their dark profile. It is possible, therefore, that dark triad traits do not influence left versus right political orientation in the same manner as the Big Five, but rather influence the strategies that people use to achieve their political and ideological goals. For example, right and left oriented individuals high in trait psychopathy might use similar aggressive means to achieve their goals, despite such methods being inconsistent with traditional, compassionate, left-oriented values." Unquote. The author showed, in testing a sample of 511 U.S. residents, that dark triad personality traits are correlated to authoritarian political attitudes on both the left and the right. Authoritarianism is totally incommensurate with science. If it is necessary that the results of a study produce a certain outcome, then the study cannot have been scientific. If you want to effectuate totalitarianism, you do not need to make believers out of the whole population. You just need to have the dark triad on your side in the form of the Gestapo. The rest will fall in line. This is what is happening in American academia. The beginnings of a process that always takes place with the rise of authoritarian rule. Empower the ideologues in academia, in corporate offices, in social media companies, and they will bring down the jackboots for your tyrannical cause. We, the American intellectuals, are supposed to be the line of defense against this, not just when it comes from the right, as it often does, but also when it comes from the left. How about I close with a few words from some Americans you may have heard of? Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Or how about, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Or these, You'd better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone, for the times they are a-changing. My friends, the time has come for us to stand up together and announce what we know to be true. The emperor has no clothes. Dear hiring committee, is that all right with you? Can I tender an opinion in good faith? Can I speak the truth to the best of my knowledge? Can I admit the limits of scientific knowledge? Can I teach my students to use skepticism when they encounter arguments and claims, when they come from anonymous sources online, and when they come from the emblems of authority? Can I show my students, all my students, the respect due to valued individuals by challenging them to become their best selves, to be honest and courageous and studious in pursuit of their dreams? Or would that be politically inexpedient? I mean, after all, this is an emergency.